Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2023 and our session today with Helen Garner and Hedley Thomas. My name is Sarah Krasnestein. I'm the author of The Trauma Cleaner and The Believer, a quarterly essay on mental illness and vulnerability in Australia. And before I wrote professionally, I was a lawyer and I have a doctorate in criminal law. I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this unceded land, where we have gathered and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. We are here to discuss how we understand and write about some of the most complex, confronting, and conflicting areas of human experience. Crime, justice, resolution, and irreparable loss. There are no finer narrators of such timeless stories than legendary author Helen Garner and investigative journalist Hedley Thomas. Helen Garner writes novels, stories, screenplays, and works of nonfiction. In 2006, she received the inaugural Melbourne Prize for Literature, and in 2016, she won the Western Australian Premier's Book Award, and through Yale University, the Global English Language Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize for Nonfiction. In 2017, she won a Walkley for her exploration of Akon Gwoda's killing of her three children, Why She Broke, The Woman, Her Children, and the Lake in the Monthly. In 2019, Helen was honored with the Australian Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. Her books include Monkey Grip, The Spare Room, The First Stone, Joe Chinque's Consolation, This House of Grief, Everywhere I Look, Yellow Notebook, One Day I'll Remember This, and How to End a Story. Hedley Thomas has been a journalist for over 35 years. In 2017 and 18, Headley investigated the suspected, then suspected murder in 1982 of Sydney mother of two, Lynn Dawson, now Lynn Sims, by her husband, Chris Dawson. The investigation unfolded in his podcast, The Teacher's Pet, which now has more than 80 million downloads and won a gold walkway. In 2022, Headley's third major podcast, Shandy's Story, investigated the murder of a young woman in Queensland in 2013, uncovering gross negligence and triggering a public inquiry and the current reinvestigation and resolution of serious offenses, including rape and murder. Headley is also the author of the book Sick to Death about the infamous Dr. Jayant Patel, and he has won eight Walkley Awards, including two gold Walkleys. Welcome, Helen and Headley. They deserve another clap. So, crime is a high-volume proposition. What we read about in the news is just a sliver of what's happening in our overburdened courts, uh, where we have entire lists that are just devoted solely to family violence or sexual violence. And of course, what makes it into the courts and the papers is just a sliver of unreported crimes that are happening in public and private all around the nation. Given those overwhelming numbers, I'd like to kick off by asking each of you how the crimes that you've written about have distinguished themselves, how, you, how they first came to your attention and then hooked you in that way that you knew you were in it for the long haul. Helen, could you start us off? Yeah, I'll talk about the, um, the book I wrote called uh, This House of Grief, which was about um, three children who's, uh, they were the children of, of a broken marriage and uh, their father had them out on a uh, Father's Day outing 
and on the way home, his car went into a dam. Uh, this is down in Victoria in a small country town called Winchelsea. And I saw it on TV and I saw uh, this horrible scene at, at a dam where there were, you know, men in high vis and, and um, horrible lights shining on the surface of this black water. And, and I just thought, please, God, let this be an accident. That was my first response to it. I, I didn't know anything about the story. I just saw that these kids were in the dam and the father was not in the dam and I just sent up a prayer. And so that's that was what I wanted to find out. Was it an accident or did he do it on purpose? And so I then spent the next seven years of my life following how the courts tried to figure out an answer to that same question. Do you reckon that question to yourself, beneath it was the journo's kind of sense for uh, this is not an accident? Is it a journalist question or just a human question? Oh, I reckon. Both. I mean, what, I guess what you're asking me is, there's something that Janet Malcolm said in one of her books. She said, I felt the first stirrings of repertorial desire. Mm. And so, I mean, that's a very elegant way of putting oh. it. Just that burst of curiosity that grabs you. I don't mean like to write about it. I mean just kind of that sense of seeing that level of violence mm. repeatedly and, mm. and with a human, you know, kind of in, intelligent, ignorant uh, response would be, oh, that's so awful, it must be an accident. Mm. If you see these patterns enough, whether you're a journal or a lawyer, you kind of know oh, that's not an accident. Yeah. Well, another thing that happened to me over those seven years was I, I had this dread... I wanted it to be an accident. I, I, the idea that somebody would kill their children on purpose is just kind of unbearable to me. Yeah. And see, the, after the book came out, people talked to me about um, arguments they'd had or, you know, people who, who said, oh, women say, oh, I'm not going to read that book. Why aren't you going to read that book? Because nowhere in that book does Helen Garner say that Robert Farquharson is a monster. Yeah. And I thought, um, firstly, how did she know I didn't if she hadn't read the book? And so, <laughs> but secondly, I thought, if he was a monster, I wouldn't be interested in writing about him. Yeah. The, the sorts of stories that I'm interested in writing are about uh, people who, who are as close to ordinary as me or the next person. I, I'm interested in what, what it is that makes you foot go through the floor. Yeah, and that comes through so strongly because that book is that dialogue of you with yourself of please let this be an accident mm. and then the hard knowledge that reality is sometimes... Yeah, and sitting in the court different. over all the hearings that took place over the seven years, that my, uh, you know, there were some journalists who were present who were just gung-ho, you know, they would have liked to string up this guy outside the court. And... Um, and but, but me, I, I felt I switched and flowed and as the evidence flowed and, um, and, and as the witnesses gave their testimonies, I would go, oh, no, he can't. I mean, he can't possibly have done this. And then the next person would get up and say, but the tyre tracks show us. And I'd go, oh. 
uh, you know, it was like this terrible zigzagging feeling. And uh, I thought I never got over it, really. Yes. It was really awful. And I mean, it'd be easier to, you'd be easier to go, oh, what a bastard. You know, I'm going to write a book that says this mm. guy is an absolute bastard and deserves everything that comes to him. But it, um, it wasn't as simple as that. Hadley, how about you? With the very <clears throat> first hooking of the, of the Dawson Yeah, story. I was just listening to um, Helen's really thoughtful descriptions there and I thought um, the teacher's pet really didn't zigzag so much in terms of did he do it or not. Um, I thought he was that absolute bastard who yeah. had got away <laughs> with murder. And um, I had the first burst of curiosity uh, 22 years ago when I was a... Um, a uh, much younger reporter for the Courier-Mail newspaper in Brisbane, and I was reading in the, um, the archives room some um, back, back copies of the Daily Telegraph. Mm. And it was uh, reporting then on the first inquest into the presumed death of Lynn Dawson. And I, I was reading about um, a babysitter who had become the second wife, uh, a devoted mother, Lynn, who just adored those two little girls and and was utterly dedicated to her husband, who was a school teacher and a famous footballer. We know the story well, but that those elements um, gripped me and caused me to want to investigate it back then in 2001. So that that was the sort of um, start of my curiosity about it. And then in 2017, when people started um, listening to podcasts, and I realised. As a lot of my friends and colleagues and newspapers were losing their jobs, you know, the industry was shrinking and changing and we were all trying to work out how we might fit in for, you know, another 10 or 15 years. We all had commitments and I wanted to make um, a powerful difference with a story that I had never been able to forget that I'd stored in, in, um, in files in my, my, um, my house carport roof for all those years. And this was the one I revisited um, because I thought it was such an injustice when I delved into it in 2001. It was an even bigger injustice in 2017, 2018 because it still hadn't been resolved. And probably because of uh, my own reporting experiences over the intervening years, I had seen how authorities, um, um, prosecutors and police and agencies that we think are going to do um, an A-grade job, how they fail, and fail in the most um, depressing ways to deliver justice, to um, um, produce the outcome that could have been produced. Don't get me wrong, I, I'm not down on these agencies, but they're um, very fallible. And uh, I had that belief in 2001 and a stronger conviction about it and probably more confidence from the experiences I'd had as a journalist leading up to the podcast in 2018 that I thought that I would be able to delve into that and without being arrogant in showing up these problems, just tell the story and let the listenership work it out. And I, and, and I, I know I believe that, I, that the listenership would have the same reaction that I had that people would be angered yeah. and alarmed at what hadn't been done and what still um, needed to be done, and it wasn't too late. Um, so, yeah, it has, it has a long tail. There's something very moving about thinking of all those nearly two decades of stasis. Um, 
that all that time there was a box in your garage marked Lynn and mm. that, that hadn't gone away. Yeah. Yeah, I'm incredibly grateful to my, um, <clears throat> my son Alexander who called a short time ago um, to wish me luck. Um, so he was about 17 or eight, just turned 18 when I got him to go up and grab that box out of the, <laughs> the, uh, the high part of the roof. And um, it was a section of the roof I didn't want to go near because I figured if I fell, um, I definitely wouldn't be working for a while. <clears throat> and he went up and it, it was such a hot day that he came down sweating and he wasn't too happy because it took several hours to pull everything else down. And I'd stored lots and lots of files up there. In fact, a few people have said, um, that uh, if, if there are other unsolved true crimes that I dealt with years ago, <laughs> I should put away those files because my house is going to get burned down. <laughs> I wish I could remember who said this um, because I think about it often, but it was something along the lines of when I was younger, I mistakenly thought that exceptionalism was the story. Headley, one of many chilling things in Teacher's Pet is the automatic default to normality which you embroider throughout the narrative. The many ways too many people failed to act on their reasonable suspicions or intuitions about Dawson's culpability for Lynn's murder. Um, that human impulse to mind your own business or defer to louder personalities or group hierarchies for fear of looking wrong or foolish. Helen, we saw that too, I think, in the incred incredulous passivity of Anu Singh's friends, who she had told she intended to kill, Joe Chinkwe, mm. some, who, some of whom were present at the parties at which she, in fact, drugged him, and none of whom alerted the police. I think we also saw it in the magical thinking um, in this house of grief, in Cindy Farquharson's initial um, defense of her husband in that first trial, that he wouldn't hurt a hair on their heads, and her psychological inability at that time to recognize the worst in him. Mm. Um, so back to that idea of exceptionalism. On the surface, both of you have written large-scale investigative works about exceptional crimes and spectacular failures of justice and of humanity. But equally, can we read them as being about far more familiar and frequent everyday horrors of human nature? We'll start off with Headley. What do you, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think that um, when you look back at the, um, the very obvious signs that foul play had unfolded mm. in January 1982 um, in this um, house on an escarpment at Bayview, Bayview in the Northern Beaches. You think, how did this not become a major media event and um, a community concern right back then, particularly in circumstances where um, a former schoolgirl uh, had then moved into the house as the partner and, um, and then a few years later, the, the, the second wife um, of Chris Dawson. When Lynn was missing and everyone knew her personality so well, her, her dedication, the fact that she'd needed and, and willingly went and had surgery so that she could have children and, and loved them so dearly, dearly, why did no one raise the alarm sooner? And I think it must be partly because of the time. You know, the women I've spoken to, Lynn's friends who worked with her, um, you know, they have a measure of guilt and remorse that they didn't do more. Lynn's family feel um, similarly. And they're very trusting, honest, decent people. They still believed in 
their brother-in-law. And because they didn't live on the northern beaches, they were not aware of the haste with which he acted, having killed Lin to um, uh, put his former student into um, Lin's home and, and try to erase all um, history of Lin. They weren't aware of that. They were being told that Lin was still alive, still, still in touch, said that she needed a bit more time away. So just kept being kicked down the, the road. And uh, the police behaved at that time either corruptly or incredibly foolishly because Chris Dawson played football with coppers um, on the northern beaches in a team called the Bell Rose Eagles. Um, there was a police officer um, with whom he played whose uh, statement at the, you know, years later described how he saw Chris turn up um, with a, a student, he said, and, and the copper says, oh, he's having an affair with the schoolie. And people, so people knew this, including yeah. coppers who, who really had an onus to do something about it, uh, to report this. It was clearly um, uh, um, inappropriate and probably illegal. So why didn't those things happen? Um, I, I think there's still, for me, um, uncertainty about that. It's partly the era. Um, it's partly the trust that people can have in a charismatic, popular, um, uh, smooth person. Mm. Someone with the reputation and the good looks uh, and the profile and of a first footballer. grade footballer. That's it. Factor yeah. that in. Yeah. I reckon that's yeah. really important. Well, yeah. obviously I know you do you're too. Absolutely spot on. He was a first grade rugby league footballer. And everybody wants to be his friend. Mm. I mean, mm. I'm interested in that blokey world that, that the, the cops plus the Dawson brothers, that, that, that sort of hero worship of footballers. Yeah. Um, I'm terribly interested in football. And, I, and, I know, and I'm, I'm very interested in police as well. Actually, I have to say that we're not... Can I just take this away? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go. Um, <laughs> no. No, I, I'm just very interested in, um, as you mentioned... Matt Condon before, mm. your friend of mine. And um, we've had lots of interesting conversations about uh, loyalties between police. And that's something I discovered when I was um, researching this house of grief. I got to know some cops who I really, really liked. They were decent, good cops. And I'd like to salute all decent, good cops. But <clears throat> these were the guys who... Um, uh, you know, had to sort of basically get the car out of the dam with the kids in it, and then they had to measure everything to see how the car had got in the water. Anyway, I got to know these cops, and, and I was really struck by their loyalty to each other. There's a passionate loyalty that existed between them in their working lives. Mm. And um, they spoke with the sort of... Um, this, this one particular guy, he used to be a, a tow truck driver and he used to go to a lot of horrible crashes. And these, these are cops who go out to horrible crashes where there's bodies. And, um, and he, so he was a tow truck driver and how he got into the police force was he got to know a lot of cops in major collision. And they said, oh, you're really good at this. So why, why, why don't you um, join up? So he joined up. And then his, his exciting life as a cop began. And he would talk about, and they, so they, they work in teams. They go out in these horrible cases where there's corpses and, and fire and God knows what. And the loyalty that they have to have to each other just sort of bear the horror of the work that they do. Um, I was terribly sort of moved by it. And, and one of this, this big 
thuggish guy with a big moustache and he was sort of sweet. And, and he said to me, um, he wanted to talk about his mate who was in the group that went out. He said, Brad is the most fantastic bloke it's ever been my pleasure to know. And he would say that with a trembling voice of a, in a statement of passionate loyalty and love. And I always thought, oh, isn't this wonderful? What wonderful guys they are. And I still think that. But then later I started thinking, there's got to be a flip side to that loyalty. Mm. Uh, and that's when talking to Matt, because he did so much in, in work with the um, cor police corruption stories in Queensland, that... Um, the flip side of that loyalty is, what if your friend is on the take? What do you do? I mean, this is a person that's, that's sort of saved you in situations of, of horrible freak out and, and, and panic and, and fear. And, and you think, oh, he's taking a bribe. What do I do? And you, say, you think, oh, well, I'll just shut up. I won't say anything. You put, you, you put mateship ahead of your vow that you took, you know, your oath. And I, um, that also kind of moved and frightened me because I've never been in that kind of situation with a workmate that I would do anything to save them from, the, from what they'd done. And so, so I'm sort of projecting that onto their, you know, presumed mateship with the Dawson brothers. And we, and we know from the, in the 70s the, uh, the culture uh, in the police force uh, meant that there were much stronger relationships and ties with rugby league clubs in Sydney. Mm. The Newtown Jets, where Chris and Paul Dawson played, was a club that was particularly associated with organised crime. Arthur Nettie Smith, oh. the contract killer, yeah. uh, was uh, a close associate of that club. His brother-in-law, Paul Hayward, played in the same first grade team with the Dawson brothers. Paul Hayward, of course, was uh, convicted uh, over the trafficking of um, a suitcase of heroin in Bangkok. Um, and uh, served a number of years in, in Thailand's prison. But there were criminal elements right around that club through that period. Uh, and in fact, during the murder trial, one of the former Newtown Jets players gave evidence. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't accepted by the judge, but the evidence that he gave um, was that um, Chris Dawson had asked him for help to get rid of Lynn um, sometime before Lynn actually disappeared. Uh, which so was that never uh, admitted as evidence? It wasn't it, admissible. It, no, it was admissible. The judge decided that he didn't he, he didn't need to or wouldn't um, take it into account yeah, okay. to convict. Mm. Mm. So I'm just going to keep us on the roadmap a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> so, well, well, ideally, we'd be here all day. I would love it, but. Um, Good factual writer has much in common with a good detective, a good judge, and a good psychologist. And Hemingway said it simply, the most essential gift for a good writer is a built-in, shock-proof shit detector. And among your other talents, you are two of our nation's finest shit detectors. <laughs> factual writing is an extremely unforgiving medium. And as one of my favorite judges, the great learned hand, that's his actual name, said, there's nowhere to hide on the open page. So. There was something very fortifying about being in the presence of a certain type of nonfiction writer, a certain type of journo, because of their inner moral authority. They've accepted that if they're doing this right, boats will be rocked, people will disagree, sometimes very strongly, and they refuse to sacrifice being right for being liked. 
Headley, I think Lynn Sims' brother Greg, his wife Marilyn, referred to this as uh, harnessing one's inner mongrel, which I love. Uh, that's bloody uncomfortable at the best of times, and it can be downright terrifying when dealing with criminal offending, which often involves, to put it nicely, complex personalities. Um, does being frank and fearless come with a cost, and does it get easier over time? You definitely get better at um, bullshit detecting over time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love that expression you use, because I think it's such an what, important... What, mongrel? Well, that too, but... Uh, uh, the shit detector is so, oh, yeah. so important in, in this kind of journalism and writing. Uh, I had the privilege of growing up on the Gold Coast where you meet a lot of bullshit artists. <laughs> <laughs> and um, most of them were my friends. <laughs> so, uh, and they're still my friends, so that's OK. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I was a bit of a teenage rogue and, and so I would hang out with guys who... Uh, could talk their way into and out of any difficult situation. Um, and I think that uh, that culture, that, that conditioning um, is so important. If I had had a very privileged kind of, um, you know, private uh, schooling, eastern suburb style in Sydney, I suspect I would have been sheltered from the kinds of people who I come up against or investigate as a, as a, as a journalist now. And, and, and so that stood me in, in good stead. I'm gonna give you a little example. Like when the Fitzgerald inquiry into police corruption was first starting, and I was a young cadet reporter at the Gold Coast Bulletin, and I wanted to make a contribution because there was such an amazing body of material that was um, being promised that might come out, you know, everything from illegal gambling and illegal casinos to cops being paid off by brothel operators. But it was a very early stage. But since I was 16, my mates and I on a Friday night would go to the illegal casino above the gelati bar in the surfer's paradise um, in, in the Cavill Mall. And we, we would gamble there for free drinks before going to the Bombay Rock um, to watch a band. And sometimes we'd even win at playing blackjack and roulette. And, you know, you're not meant to do that at 16. And there were no illegal casinos, according to the police at the time. There were none. They didn't exist. So from one of my first stories for, for the Bulletin, I did the story on this illegal casino I'd been frequenting, you know, for some years. My friends were horrified <laughs> that I exposed this place they were still going to, but it was finally shut down. But that's the kind of, you know, bullshit detecting and kind of growing up that probably stands us in better stead. Mm. Helen, has it gotten easier over time? Well, I guess it get, you get less naive. Yep. Um, and because sitting through trials, it's very interesting because you, in a sense, sitting through a long trial or one that, you know, goes for seven years and there's a chunk of it every year, you, um, you spend a lot of time looking at juries and watching their faces. And that, that interested me greatly. What, what, there'd be somebody on the stand who was being examined or cross-examined and, and you can usually tell if somebody's lying. Uh, I don't know how, well, once, I, I did once notice I was sitting in such a way that I could see the back of the person who was on the witness stand and I noticed that he was clenching his bum <laughs> at, at certain points, you know, he'd go <clears throat> like that, he was really <laughs> gripping on and I don't know if he really was, you know, worried about his bowels, but I think it was, <laughs> but I think it was more that he was, 
you know, in his anxiety, he was just mm. tense all over. And and uh, it was so... And anyway, of course, the j- jury couldn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should have their ass visible. <laughs> I'd never thought of that before. But... Um, but you can see, you can see from looking at the jury. I mean, you know, they they just they're supposed to be poker faced, yeah. I guess. But you can see there's this ripple passes along the jury, and um, uh, and it's almost like you can see their thought bubbles, yeah. saying, "What you didn't ask him? Why the <laughs> fuck didn't you ask him? You know that kind of thing." And so you kind of you get really good at reading people's facial expressions. And there's, um, you know, I haven't had that sort of, excuse me, but gutter crawling experience <laughs> that, that you describe. You know, I'm a sort of respectable singer. <laughs> uh, I can, yeah. I just hear, but, you know, uh, they don't, it does give you an advantage. It's true, isn't it? <laughs> Criminal defence lawyers from here on will be telling their clients, they're journalists in the court, no bum clenching. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving right along. This is a craft question. Um, I'm curious about duration as an aspect of your storytelling. Duration. Duration, yeah. Yeah. Headley, teacher's pet, nearly 20 years of of thinking um, and familiarity with the story, which then was changing in real time in response to the information and the people that you were bringing to light. Uh, Helen, you were steeped in the Farquharson case over the course of not one but two trials, total of about seven years with material that many of the rest of us couldn't bear to look at for one moment. Um, one of the most challenging parts of working with stories of that enormous scale and time scale is taming a messy mountain of undifferentiated information into a story. Janet Malcolm, another giant in this genre, has written about how all factual storytelling is an act of discernment. It's inevitably subjective and selective because of that task of turning messy reality into the tidier narrative. Can we hear a bit from each of you about how you manage those challenges of finding and then keeping a clear line through all the detail that threatens to overwhelm? And in terms of the process, do you apply the same process each time or does it change according to the unique material of each story? Mm. I, I can give you an answer to that because I figured out a way to do it. And I always want to tell people this because it's really useful. And, and that is that I, uh, if I'm starting to write, you know, get, picking up a project that I know is going to take a while, I go out and I buy myself a whole lot of um, Spirex A4 notebooks, you know, like exercise books. And every night when I get home from whatever it is I've done, if it's been in the court or if it's been interviewing people or going around here and there, I, I make a, it's a kind of a diary, sort of a journal of my engagement with the material. And I really just can't say how useful this turns out to be. I mean, at the beginning when I was writing Joe Chinque's Consolation or when I was at the trial, um, I kind of had to write a diary because it was so awful. You know, I was just so freaked out. And I'd get home every day from the court and or from being at the Chinque's house or whatever. And I'd be carrying this load of pain, really. And I felt like I had to write it down. I had to articulate it right away. And so I would just write... Because I would, you don't have to write down everything you heard because you get the transcript. But... Um, I just would write down 
everything that happened that day in my thoughts about the case or who gave evidence, what they looked like, did they clench their ass. Um, but, you know, what people wore or um, just the feeling I had. Or and, and when I was saying before about how your feeling kind of flows with the development of the story. And so I, I just would write that down. And the thing about doing that is you get a lot of detail which you think you always imagine, you know, it takes a while, you know, it takes about 10 minutes when you start being a journalist to realise if you don't write things down, you're stuffed. So, but I, I, I just found that when I came to write the book and I have 20 tonnes of stuff and the whole, uh, you know, the, the years of transcript of various trials and hearings of every kind, I think, how the hell am I going to turn this into a anything that anyone would want to read. And so then I go, mm, I'll have a look at the journal. So I, I went back and looked at the journal, which was kind of the, my thing to keep sane, and I'd find that that was the spine of the book. Yeah. That was the narrative of the, of the book. And I thought, oh, God, I see. This often happens as a writer, I found. You think, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do it. And then you say, shut up and sit down and have a look what's there and you find you have already done a lot of the work without realising it. Um, your unconscious does a hell of a lot of work in, in this kind of situation. But, um, but, but to get back to those notebooks, they, they, had, they, were, they were a narrative and that's the other reason why you know, people say, oh, why do you always put yourself in your books? And that's why, because I think one of the most interesting parts of following a long trial is that fluctuation in your attitude towards what you're learning. And I wouldn't know how to, um, you know, I used to think that you had to write a sort of disinterested um, kind of hovering thing, oh, and this happened and then the police did that. And, and you had to sort of be, have a godlike position over the story. And once I realised that the juice of the story was in those diaries and it was totally not godlike, it was more like a gutter crawling through, <laughs> and that's when I thought, oh, I see, I've actually got a lot of stuff here and I've done a lot of the work. So I found those notebooks unbelievably useful. And I always want to say this because there's probably someone here who wants to write a story and, and they don't know how to do it. And, oh. and I found that was terrifically useful. So that's how I get a, got a grip on it. Yeah. And if I put myself in there, I can, it manif I can sort of deliver that mm. sense of the flow of the story. I never had that discipline. <laughs> um, but it's not discipline. Well, well I suppose it is because I did it's it every process. day. But it's, 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 but it's, um, yeah. it's more like if I don't do it, I'm going to go nuts. Yeah, well, I did a lot of uh, bum clenching when I had to start writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had so much material. I'd been um, interviewing people for months. Yeah. I'd been travelling to Sydney and Newcastle and Harvey Bay and other places, uh, tracking people down, former cops and, and um, family members and former students. And, um, and I kept interviewing because I knew that if I stopped interviewing, I'd have to start writing. And if I had, if I had to start writing, then I'd have to work yeah. out where to start. I didn't know where to start. Where to start? How that's do you start? That's the hell of it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And so that's where the, the hell the do I... Yeah. Where's the door? Me. What's the intro? And I'd yeah. sometimes say to my wife, darling, could you please try and write the intro? <laughs> <laughs> and she'd write it. And I'd go, oh, that's terrible. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> I can do better than yeah. that. <laughs> but it's often it's that, that catalyst you need. And, um, and when it came time to write um, the first episode of The Teacher's Pet, because the story had consumed me, I'd 
gone um, from being deeply interested and committed to being obsessive, not in a crazy way, but, you know, almost. Uh, Which and you, you have to be obsessed, you, though, don't you? You do. You've you got to do it otherwise. give yourself fully to it. And uh, I realised when I stepped back, I had to think, okay, what parts of this story and the people I've talked to have affected me the most so that uh, a, a personal and important um, literary style can come through that might engage the listener to keep listening because I had to make something people would want to listen to to make a difference. Well, see, that's what you've got with a podcast and that's what's fantastic in The Teacher's Pet is the vo your voice. Uh, and you, in that story, you hang on. As a listener, you hang on to that voice. And it's a wonderful voice. It's a voice of restraint and warmth, but intense intensity as well. And I think that's one yeah. of the greatest achievements of, of your Thank podcast. You. I, I thought it was marvellous. Yeah. Well, I realised that Julie Andrew, who was Lynn's neighbour and good friend and lived um, up at Bayview, uh, where I had gone back a number of times and 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 just been um, uh, almost deafened by the cicadas <laughs> and 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 the, the the thick humidity of of the summer uh, over which I was visiting and that's where I wanted to start yeah. you know on this hilltop of rugged beauty um, where Lynn lived and I believe died and where I believe um, her remains um, are now. I asked you this before, but I'd like to <laughs> explore it a little bit more. Just those years of which nothing was happening and which, you know, traditional policing, once it kicked in, failed to turn up um, the body. Mm. Whether you felt, I'll just get on with it, go have a look myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I received uh, numerous um, um, emails and telephone calls from people as the series unfolded because... You know, unlike a book or even a documentary on television, the series became a live investigation because I hadn't finished each episode um, after episode... Well, actually started changing them after the first episode because of the amount of material that was coming mm. in. Were you scared? Oh, it was risky. You yeah. mean scared of people hurting well, me? Well, scared of anything. I mean, it's such I, a... I was scared of everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in that because it's yeah. scary. Yeah. I mean, especially when when you're doing the work that the cops just couldn't be bothered doing, yeah. uh, that you were treading on their territory. And, and I mean, I just found the whole thing completely thrilling and awesome. And But but I I just, you know, I, I can't try to imagine how it would be to be putting your, your stuff out there while you're still doing it. See, when you write a book, you can finish the book and then the book goes out there. So, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying, here's chapter one, what do you all think? You know, I mean, it's sort of... <laughs> but, but you, <laughs> so I don't have to do that. Yeah. But... Um, well, I didn't intend it to be like that. I intended to just... I got impatient after I actually finally had found the intro and wrote the first three and a half or four episodes. I rang the editor-in-chief and said... I don't want to just keep writing and we don't start podcasting. Let's just start it, weekly episodes. And, you know, by the time people get to episode five, I will have probably finished episode seven or eight, so I'll be ahead of them. But what happened was so much more material started coming in. It was like the Northern Beaches' dirty secret. Everybody wanted to talk about it. Everyone knew something. People came out of the woodwork. People who had been quiet for years or had been frustrated that something they took to the police was not acted upon. So they saw me as 
the means, the vehicle by which, you know, they could finally see justice for something so many people knew mm. was, a, was a murder that had been concealed mm. and covered up all these years. So that led to um, a real high-wire high act in the, uh, the writing and, and, and editing. And, and I think that when you are infused with adrenaline, when the deadlines become impossible, when, you know, the episode drops on a Thursday night and you start on the Friday um, with a Word document that's blank and you've got to produce 10,000 words and narrate it and produce it and release it within six days, like, you know, oh, and get it legaled as well because you don't want to be sued for a couple of million dollars. So uh, <laughs> that's when it starts to sort of kick in that you go, okay. And, but, but I find that most journalists who have worked in those situations produce their best work when they're under those sorts of deadlines. That's why we always put things off until the last minute. We procrastinate yeah. Yeah. and then nail it. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. In This House of Grief, Helen, you wrote Justice Philip Cummins. You quote Justice Philip Cummins, quoting in turn an old saying, appeal judges are men who in the cool of the evening undo work that better men do in the heat of the day. (laughs) I'm thinking um, about faith. It's often said that our system of justice is imperfect, but it's the best there is. After everything you both have seen and worked with, uh, you can answer either part of this. Whether, do you still have faith that that's true? And if not, can we reach something that looks closer to redemption, human redemption, by writing journalistically than we can through the traditional, cold, clinical, legalistic courts? Either of you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I think if, you, if, um, if I step back and think about the criminal justice system and um, whether it is um, as good as it can be, my view is that um, it favours defendants over victims of crime and that one way to slightly change what I believe is an uneven balance is for... Uh, jurors or judges if they're acting alone to be permitted under law to to draw an inference when an accused, whether an accused murderer or rapist, um, refuses to go into a witness box. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I think that, I'm not saying that you, you, you automatically should assume the worst, but you should be allowed to draw an inference as to why the person is We should avoiding. tell people that that's what the judge says. Yeah. I mean, people don't yeah. know that. Yes. So, of course, the right to silence is really important. And The judge know, says that to the jury right at the start. Yes. He says, you, um, if, if this person doesn't answer the question or doesn't appear on the stand, you are not to make any negative inference. You're not to assume that that means they're guilty, in other mm. words. Mm. So they're told that. Mm. These are things I didn't know mm. until I went to sit in on trials. Yeah. And so my view is that a, a very slight but important tweak to that principle would allow jurors to say, I'm going to draw an inference that the reason he doesn't want to talk about what he did after or answer questions uh, from his own lawyer or a prosecutor uh, about what he did immediately after his wife disappeared, Mm. uh, I'm going to draw an inference about that that might not be favourable for the accused. Mm. I'm sure they do. Draw that inference. <laughs> but they're not allowed to. Help. But they're not allowed to. But how could you not? I mean, I, you just sit sit there and you hear some 
somebody like hang themselves right, right in front of well, you. If you're and... right, if they do, let's just make it official. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, you still have faith that we get it right most of the time in the courts? Well, well, I mean, I'm leaving aside the whole sexual crime mm. thing. I mean, that that's a whole world of horror that mm. uh, it, it just obviously a lot of um, the law just the law can't deal with certain crimes. I mean, like where there's two people there, there's a rapist and the person he's yeah. raping. I mean, and it's he said and she said, yeah. and there's no witnesses. Yeah. The law um, cannot sort of function in because of because of its limitations. Yeah. Um, I've I used to, I used to be a hippie, and I I hated and feared the police, yeah. and. Um, I, that's one thing I learnt from doing this kind of work, is how many good cops there are. Would you agree? Yeah, I yeah. think, and, and the police ultimately did a fantastic job. And uh, there in, were some pretty slack case. ones in your story. Yeah, but, but, they, but, but um, some really, really good ones who yeah. rescued it. Yeah, well, see that. So that was a bit of a revelation to me to find that a there's these fantastic cops, and b that they were. Yeah, that I noticed this, you know, and I, I, I saw what they went through mm. um, and the, the awfulness they go through in court and the frustration of their work. So that's one thing I've, I have for great sympathy for, for, for good cops. Um, I think the law is really hard to bear in many ways. Mm. Um, the idea that somebody is who is <clears throat> plainly to everyone sitting in the room has a case to answer. It looks like they did something. But um, I'm talking about uh, the Judge Inquay trials now and from Judge Inquay's consolation that, that, you know, a clever lawyer can um, get you off mm. and, and even if you did it. And, and, that, and, it, and to see that happen right before your eyes is deeply shocking. Mm. And, um, yeah, those are hard things to be air, to, to get over. But by the same token, I've seen things happen in courts that were quite beautiful yeah. and um, fine yes. and, and psychologically sophisticated um, and full of well-placed empathy. Yes. And th those things I find you know, deeply moving and they make me feel like it's all worth it. Mm -hmm. And I, I have enormous respect for good cops and lawyers who aren't sleazebags and, and judges who aren't up themselves. You know, it's, and, and there, are, there are such people. I've seen them. This is a cheery note to, yeah. uh, to end on. <laughs> so I'm going to take a question first from our um, live stream watcher, viewers. Uh, Christine from East Maitland, love both your work. And are you willing to share what story you are both working on or investigating now? Uh, yes, I'm writing a book. <laughs> I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to start it over the last uh, four years because I was concerned that um, some of the, the lawyers that we've been speaking of um, would subpoena it <laughs> if they had a manuscript that uh, hadn't been published. But now that the trial has ended and a conviction recorded, um, a very patient publisher has said, hey, it's about time you sort of tinkled the keys and produced that book that we asked you to do four and a half years ago. Uh, so that's what I've been working on. And I'm, 
95,000 words in. I recently said, I think this should be two. Yeah. (laughs) But then I said, this needs to be two volumes. I can't possibly fit it in 110,000 words. So um, uh, I think that's under discussion. I'm not sure how that's going to (laughs) go. Look forward to that. Helen, are you able to share? Uh, Yeah. I didn't want to talk about this for a while because I I just... um, I've, I've got a... Look, I'm getting old. And, and, when, and then when, when COVID happened and it was so depressing and awful and afterwards I thought, oh, maybe this is over. You know, maybe I've come to the end of what I've got to give. And, and then I was really bored. And, and I thought, um, I'm not going back to court. I just couldn't face another seven years in, mm. in the court. I went back to the magistrate's court for a while and that was like, there's more laughs in a magistrate's court, wouldn't it? <laughs> but um, I don't know, I just... I thought, well, what am I interested in at the moment? I thought, I'm really interested in footy. I mean, AFL, football. And, uh, and my, one, my youngest grandchild is, um, plays in the local under-16 team. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I thought, oh, well, I'm, I'm the one who takes him to training and hangs around while he is at training. And um, he's put on this enormous growth spurt. Like, he's about, you know, he's, t- he's nearly six feet tall and... And I just, I'm so nuts about him. And, and I just love to watch him play. And I thought, oh, what, can I put these two things together? The fact that I'm crazy about the Western Bulldogs and plus um, the Flemington Colts under 16s. I thought, there's got to be a way I can put these two together and it'll give me something to like do. So I said, oh, I, I said, um, and the coach turns out, the coach is only 20 and I've known him since he was about that big. And his name's Archie. Anyway, I go to Archie, I go, listen, Archie, can I, how about I write something about Ambie's football team? He goes, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So um, I said, you, should I tell the club about it? And he goes, ah, don't tell the club. You know, they'll only want you to write, you know, a sort of puff piece about their club. He says, um, uh, I said, well, should I ask the boys? And he says, Helen, these boys are... Uh, they're 15. They've got an attention span about that big. And they, they, if you say anything to them, they'll turn away, they'll walk away and they will have forgotten it five minutes later. Why bother? Don't you? He said, just turn off. So I, I started to um, go to training and I don't know how I'm going to write the book, but I'm just loving it. I, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, anyway, that's what I'm doing. That's the short answer. <laughs> Do we have our questions from the live audience? Um, yeah, first of all, thank you so much, um, Helen and Headley, for an amazing conversation. I'm such a huge admirer of your work. Um, my question is, in your years of writing about the criminal justice system, what, if any, differences have you observed in the way men versus women navigate and are treated by the system, whether as victims or as the accused? Hmm. Are you looking at me? <laughs> I get both. Would you like to start? Um, oh, gee, I don't know what to say. No, I'll let him do this. <laughs> Can I throw it back to you? No, just kidding. <laughs> it's oh, a hard great. question. I don't. I don't. I, 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 know I, look, the it's, a, it's a it's a tough question. I think that um, uh, the system as it existed when Chris Dawson should have been under investigation um, was certainly more male-friendly. I believe that Mm. men were much more likely to get away with murder in the 1980s compared with now. And that's why there's... Do you think so? Yeah, I do, because uh, you only need to 
hear from um, um, Lynn's friends who, who say, and Julie Andrews is a classic example, she, t she told me that she believed very soon after Lynn disappeared that she had been killed. She had been murdered and that the police never came to her door. And yeah, I said, well, why didn't you, you know, I had to ask this question as gently as possible because I didn't want to make her feel victimised, but I needed to know why didn't you go to the door of the police mm. to report this? And, and Julie just said, well, it was a different time then. Mm. You know, women, you know, did what they were told. We believed that if the police weren't investigating, there was probably nothing going on. Mm. You trusted your doctor. You trusted the police. You didn't speak up. You didn't, you didn't, you know, um, rattle the cage. Mm. And I think that's the difference. Now, because we're so much better connected, if you have a friend or a neighbour who goes missing, it'll be on Facebook within hours. Mm. If she's the mother of two little girls, mm. it, suddenly it's being shared thousands of times before lunchtime. Um, and... Uh, we don't, I think, uh, have the same misogynistic approach to justice that, that must have existed back then. I mean, I was a, a teenager, so I can't speak from my own personal experience. I'm taking it from what I've been told through going down the memory hole and talking to women who lived it through the 80s. Yeah, I wonder if in those days um, people thought that the, the law was men's business. Mm. I, I just that suddenly occurred to me while you were talking that... Um, I mean, it's just walking into a police station. I actually, I've got a very small story to tell. It's a mortifying thing that happened to me in my neighbourhood. Um, I was walking home and I had to go through this spooky underpass near the station. And there was a guy, when I came out there, I was with a friend, fortunately, a woman, and we came out the other end and it was pitch dark. And there's this guy wearing a black beanie and he was all, and he was holding this like stick about as long as a bike pump, you know, sort of. And he, and he was just standing there and we sort of went, oh. So we turned and walked along our street and he started to jog behind us. Oh. And we didn't know what to do, so we just speeded up our pace. We just kept walking along the railway line street. And uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, you know, he was started to yell. He sounded like he was crazy. You know, he was yelling in some strange way that, and waving his arm with this stick in it. And, and, and we didn't run. We thought <clears throat> we didn't run. We didn't scream. I don't know why we just sped it up, kept walking. We thought, if he's crazy, running is going to be the worst thing to do. So anyway, um, we got to the corner of our street and then we, didn't, we did run. So I thought, mm, I think, uh, I mean, he was right behind me with his stick raised like this and we were just going, mm, 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 walking faster. Anyway, the next morning I thought, oh, I'm going to go to the police station and say, hey, this is my case in our neighbourhood and he's scaring people at the middle of the night. And so I go into the police station and there's this uniformed um, child with a gun on her hip and she, <laughs> she, and she comes out and she says... Um, I say, um, I, excuse me, uh, I'd like to report something that happened in our neighbourhood last night. And I explained what had happened. And she just looked at me with this kind of cynical look and she said, what were you scared of? Did you think he was going to hit you with his stick? <laughs> and I go, um, well, you know, I was supposed to, was I, in order to get taken seriously, I would have had to say, no, I thought he was going to rape both of us and bash us and dump us in the railway line. But... <laughs> I mean, I, I just thought, well, you know, if I'd been a 14-year-old girl walking home and this monster was... Mm. Mm. But she was, could not have been less interested. And I just looked at her and I thought, fuck you. I thought, <laughs> oh, 
So we were, we were scared. We were scared of the maniac who was waving this big stick at us. But she just didn't take it seriously. And I was completely mortified by that. I'm used to being taken seriously in police stations. <laughs> we are taking you seriously here. Okay, we're, what we're, we're going to take one more question very quickly because um, we're over time and I'm getting the red light, but we'll do one more. I don't mean to, to interrupt the story flow and I'm very sorry, but um, I'd be interested in both of your views as to whether you think the jury system is still a um, reasonable way of determining the truth or is there a, met a better methodology? Well, I'm uh, a big believer in the jury system. Uh, I would yeah, me too. hate to think that um, uh, judges would determine guilt or innocence in every case. I think that um, in the overwhelming majority of cases, jurors probably get it, get it right. Um, I think in very complex, very technical um, pieces of litigation uh, where the detail might be in a long trial beyond... Um, the comprehension of most like most like people. a financial thing or something like yeah, that, yeah, like that, or a technology thing mm. or um, uh, hydrology or something like that. Then there, there's definitely a strong argument for uh, judge alone. But um, I think the jurors help ensure that um, we all maintain our stake in justice. Yeah. Uh, yeah have I, you ever been on a jury? Can I ask? Mm, sorry, have I been? No, yeah. no, I was meant to be in a jury um, starting in a week or two. Uh, I got the notice, and a couple of friends of mine who are criminal defence lawyers couldn't stop laughing at the idea. <laughs> You're not going to be yeah. on a jury. Yeah. Well, they, well I'm they, not they either. Said, I've never been called. I'm yeah. furious. I'm really... <laughs> well, I, I was, it was going to be a four-week trial starting soon, oh, and I wrote to them saying, look, I, I've actually take, booked some leave, and I'm going to be overseas. And they said, yes, you're still going to have to serve. You can't take your leave. And I was like, oh, no, they really do want me on this jury. But then... Um, we um, we replied again, and uh, I was I was excused. But so. you would have been rolled, actually, at the court, wouldn't you? You wouldn't have been. I mean, you know, when they questioned the jurors, I would have needed. Sorry, I would have needed to attend court for four weeks for the jury. Is that what you mean? That's no, I mean that when they say, "Okay, here's this guy called Headley Thomas," and they'd go, oh, "What? Yeah. Get out of here!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think criminal defence lawyers um, have a view that. The work I do suggests that I'm more likely to prosecute than defend. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why that. Well, I think we have to leave it with that. Oh, we will leave you with that image of Headley on the jury. Um, and thank you, everyone, for coming. And thank you, Helen and Headley. <laughs>